It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, nice to be back in London town after our trip to Chorley last week. Uh, a busy old week ahead too. Coming up on the podcast this week, we'll obviously bring you PMQs Unpacked. We've also got a, an exclusive interview with Michael Cockrell about his new memoirs, the legendary documentary maker. And we'll take a look at how things can go wrong at party conferences. So all that's coming up on the podcast this week. Today, read all about it. Political magazines are booming. Even print sales. Print is not dead, it seems, speak to the editors of The Spectator and The New Statesman to find out why people are flocking back to print, but also their relationships with the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, respectively. So that's coming up in our big thing in a moment. But first, our columnist panel today with Libby Purvis in The Times and Rachel Cunliffe from The New Statesman. Libby, uh, well, uh, let's start with this, this story about gas. And uh, it all seems a bit complicated. And, and uh, who, depending on whose fault uh, we, we think it is, depends, you know, we'll decide what we think should be done about it. But talk of the government considering emergency state-backed loans to energy companies to sort of bail them out. It's all a bit reminiscent, Libby, of, of when they, you know, stepped in to buy up the bad banks. It always seems like a rather mad system to me that there should be so many companies all buying the same stuff and then charging slightly different prices for it. But what's really interesting, and nobody is talking about, and I get you know, the science people are not talking about it yet in the papers, is the technology in the energy story. Because one moment we're all told that carbon dioxide, terrible stuff, CO2, too much of it, people have to glue themselves to motorways to persuade us to use less. And the next thing is, no, it's absolutely vital. We can't do without it. It's all disastrous. <laughs> we need more carbon dioxide. So I looked up this thing and there is a thing called direct air capture it's a new process which is sort of very expensive so far but could get better which is actually direct air capture you take the unwanted carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and use it for the things you actually need to use it for and it just struck me that since we were talking about the same thing in two completely different contexts I, I want a bit more you know I want the science people to get their noses down into this one because uh, I haven't read anything about it in the normal press at all yeah, you're right generally carbon dioxide does get a bad press uh, it's fair to say um, but yeah it was, I was reading today so it's used to stun animals for slaughter and in the food packaging business and then it's used as dry ice which supermarkets use for chilled food deliveries and so supermarkets are now scrabbling to try and get hold of carbon dioxide because so this 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 the high gas prices could have a knock on effect of less frozen stuff in the shops. But meanwhile, we're told we're emitting we're emitting too much of it. Yeah. Therefore, we need to find a way to join the two together. Direct air capture. Uh, Switzerland and Canada are starting on this one. There are two companies doing it, I think. 
Yeah, and there's big concerns about what this is going to mean for turkeys. Uh, Rachel, are you are you concerned um, about the, the fact that? Well, it's amazing. So the, the high gas prices could lead to a shortage of turkeys for Christmas. Uh, I'm not particularly concerned about the turkeys for Christmas. I'm one of those people who thinks that the turkeys for Christmas is sort of a a mass national delusion. Nobody actually likes it. It's imported (laughs) from America. There are much nicer things to have at Christmas. We all pretend that we like this very dry meat that's impossible to cook. So that that I'm not concerned about. Energy prices in general, well, I think it's very difficult to look at the front pages today and and, and not be very, very worried, particularly as, as, as Libby said, it's very complicated, very complex supply chain, lots of different global and domestic factors that are are leading to what is essentially going to be a a cost of living crisis this autumn and winter. Later this week, we've got a vote on or or, or more political debate on the £20 cut to universal credit. We're going to see the the, the very poorest families uh, see their income cut and their energy bills spike just in time for Tory party conference, which I think is, is is quite interesting. On the technology front, I do remember five or six years ago, reading about a form of carbon capture that sucked carbon out of the air and turned it into sort of pellets of plastic that could then be reused to make any kind of plastic product. So similar to what Libby was talking about. And I also remember reading about microbes that would eat plastic and sort of biodegrade it at a much higher rate than, than anything currently does. These are the scientific innovations, I completely agree, that I want, I want to be hearing more about. What happened in those five years? Where are our plastic-eating microbes? Where is our sucking carbon out of the air technology? I mean, I guess that's also trees, but, you know, maybe there's a faster way of, of doing it. Um, yes, please, if you're, if you're a scientist working on these things, please write in. <laughs> yeah, any, any advice on this? Because it does seem, yeah, it does seem weird that we... We're complaining about a shortage of carbon dioxide when that seems to be the thing that um, uh, we spend most of the time uh, being uh, worried about. I mean, if it isn't, uh, if it isn't the pollution of, of, of the air, Libby, it's light pollution that you've written in your column, written about in your column today. Do you see that? Yes, it seems a segue. Uh, immaculate, yes, Alan Partridge <laughs> also rules. Um, um, no, it was a, a remark by Lord Deben implying that there are many people working from home now looking for country homes should not demand street lighting but should accept that sometimes in a village you shouldn't be out after dark without a hand torch. And um, I think the proliferation of too much lighting, too much street lighting, often rather badly designed street lighting, is a very sad thing because our eyes adapt naturally and in Instantly, and we then cannot see the stars on a clear night. And there is nothing more magical, more of a, a sort of a, a heritage from our, you know, from, from millennia of our ancestors than the ability to look up at stars. So I just wanted to um, uh, boost up the old campaign for dark skies and the parliamentary dark, dark skies group and the British Astronomical Association, all these people who talk about this and should be listened to. You know, it's, it's a very precious thing. And my greatest treat is getting back about one o'clock in the morning from some theatre trip or whatever and standing outside my house and just looking up at this shining sky because it's pitch pitch dark here it's magical and more people should have a chance to visit places like that and see that sight i i, I sort of totally agree with you and I, I quite often go out with my app uh i can't remember what it's called I mean, it might just be called night sky you can sort of hold it and it'll tell you what all the all of the stars are that you can see so i think I, have you seen jupiter last week if i made that up <laughs> I think you could see Jupiter was quite near the moon last week. Um, so it's a really nice thing to be able to do. I suppose the counter-argument, Libby, is that lots of people would say, well, actually, streetlights make streets safer if people are out and about on their own at night. 
Maybe in the cities, yes, but uh, you know, it's it's not that much. I mean, the thing which really annoys me is people who are in remote country places and who are so frightened of everything that they put up these Rottweiler lights. You know, these motion-sensitive, very very bright anti-burglar lights. And actually, those are brilliant for burglars. Apparently, I have been told by an actual ex-burglar that you can kind of creep up. A, they light up all the bit things you might trip over, and B, you can creep up the dark bit at the edge of the light. It's much easier to hide when there's a bright light shining in people's eyes. So I think you, you know it has to be balanced. You know, public safety and general safety and so on has to be balanced against common sense here. And uh, I, I'm all for the tortures in the country villages, certainly. That is that is proper journalism, isn't it? Interviewing an actual burglar about burglar lights. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I have to tell you, Rachel, that as you go on in your life through journalism, there's always an ex-burglar or two looking to be on the radio. <laughs> They're not, not hard to find. It's like ex-addicts, you know, you can't shut them up. Go on then, Rachel, what do you think about this? Should we turn off all the streetlights? Well, I'm a, I'm a city girl, so I don't really know what the sky looks like uh, in, in normal times. Uh, I think more, more streetlighting available in city certainly in around tube stations and, and late at night that's that's very important to make people particularly women feel safe uh, and in fact be safe when they're when they're walking home but i guess in the countryside if you want to go live in the countryside you are embracing nature and remoteness and being mm. a half hour drub, drive from the nearest place you can get a pint of milk which i have never understood uh, but if you sign up for that <laughs> lifestyle then that's what that's what comes with it. I don't quite share your romanticism about about the night sky. I like to be able to see where I'm going, um, but I did get a chance to see the Northern Lights in Iceland a few years ago, and that that really was truly magical. So maybe there is a a wonder and a mysticism and a, a kind of awe-inspiring nature of of stars that I am missing by having grown up in a city and wanting to be I don't know within five minutes of a twenty-four hour takeaway. <laughs> well, but also part of me reading your column, Libby, part of me thought actually maybe it would do everyone good to realise that they are quite insignificant in the grand scheme of things <laughs> um, and just to chill out a bit. It, it is. It's, it's, it, it's absolutely perfect. You, you sort of look up and you think, right, well, you know, they'll still be there when I'm gone and um, they don't care if I get that job. They don't care if someone's rude about me on social media. You know, hello, stars. Uh, oh, no, uh, maybe, it's, <laughs> maybe it's age... But I was always, I was, well, yes, they probably are, yes. But as the British Astronomical Association says, you know, it, they take millions of years to, to reach us. And why should that light be wasted in the last millisecond because somebody's gone and put up some bright street lights in a small village? No, I, I think I'm, I, I'm all for it. I think they think, think they ground us. The stars ironically ground us. And actually, uh, some of the most fun I've had since I've been on Times Radio was when I went out very early one morning to shoot a laser at Mars with a man from uh, Farnham. And uh, just that, and we had to go to like a park or a field, which was nice and you know, so we could. He was pointing out everything. We could, I could see Mars, you know, literally see Mars with the naked eye. And then he was shooting his lasers at it to try and lay claim to Mars, which is a sort of separate point. But actually, being out in the early morning when it was you know pitch black with somebody who knew what they were talking about, pointing everything out, it's amazing. It's amazing that you could you could do that, and yet more people should be able to do it. So just. Yeah, like you said, Libby, keep a, keep a torch by the front door. That's all you need. That's all you need. Um, uh, Rachel, let's talk about France. Yes, should, more with. Um, should we... It, it feels like France is laying a series of traps for Boris Johnson. They're just waiting for him to tumble into them all. So, um, uh, obviously, there was this AUKUS deal that was done last week the, between Australia, Britain and America. 
uh, to where Britain and America were going to share technology to build some nuclear submarines for Australia, which meant them pulling out with a deal with France. France recalled... Blimey, it is a saga, isn't it? France recalled the uh, ambassadors of Britain... Of, no, of Australia and America, but not Britain. Basically trying to make out that Britain's now so insignificant in all of this, it doesn't need to, to even bother doing that. And now the French Armed Forces Minister, Florence Parley, has uh, cancelled a meeting with her British counterpart again today to sort of, um, uh, you know, demonstrate their, their growing anger. What should we do about France, Rachel? Well, I mean, you, you, we're also, maybe we should stop relying on them to police the, the channel and getting upset when they're not following our instructions, which was, I think, last week's War with France story. <laughs> Priti Patel threatening to withdraw the, the funding there. Uh, I, I really think, I think France's beef with the UK is unwarranted, here it's it's australia and the us that they should be upset with it's not it's not our fault that australia and the us prefer us um sorry i sound like a character from mean girls now don't i it's not my fault we're popular Um, (laughs) but i I think really this is a question for france and and germany and, and and europe and the rest of the eu about attitudes to china and why it is that the the us and australia thought that britain perhaps would be a a stronger ally on this particular issue than on uh, a country in a in a block that has traditionally been a little bit more on the fence about about the actions of China. That's what it's really about. And France can can throw a hissy fit if it if it wants to, but that's not going to change those those geopolitical dynamics, is it? What about you, Libby? What do you think we should do about France? Well, I'm very struck by the Mean Girls theory of uh, UK politics in France. There there is that there is that that offence in it. But uh, Rachel's perfectly right. It is it's not. It, it, it's not about us, you know. It is. It is about the the new new attitudes um, in Australia and, and the US about China, and I think I, I, I think it will settle down. I think these these spats between us and France have tended to settle down in in recent uh, you know, the last hundred years anyway. Um, but you know, the China China is the big thing. China is the big thing we should all be looking at now and looking at with considerable care as well as, well as Russia. And um, I suppose that there's a question of where our allies should lie. You know, America keeps, you know, saying that France is our oldest ally. Uh, we like to think we've got the special relationship with America. You know, clearly uh, Emmanuel Macron is looking ahead to some, uh, you know, the French presidential election. So stirring up all this probably doesn't doesn't do him any harm. Say one, say one thing about France. At least they let us in. They're, not, they're still not letting us into America, are they? No, and there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of hope that Boris Johnson might be able to sort that out. That's something Boris is going to have to talk about soon because it's it's splitting up families, it's causing it's wrecking businesses, it's causing a great deal of trouble for really no sane reason at all. This U.S. ban on us. Yes, Australia is not even letting its own citizens in at the moment. Yeah, that's true. That's true, and we we are. But so maybe 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 we should have agreed that as part of the uh, the deal with the submarines. Rachel Cunliffe and Libby Povis there. And, of course, you can read Libby in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, read all about it. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's talk political magazines. Yes, read all about it. And we really are. The UK's political magazines are booming. So what we thought we'd do today is speak to some of the editors of some of the UK's biggest, most influential political magazines to ask, how are they doing it? Why are people uh, sticking with print? We're all supposed to be digital by now, just reading holograms or something. And what's the role they play in the political conversation and their relationship with the political parties with which they are associated Let's speak now to uh, Jason Cowley, Editor-in-Chief of the New Statesman. Morning, Jason. Morning, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Nice to have you with us. Uh, Fraser Nelson's the editor of The Spectator. Morning, Fraser. Good morning. And uh, a, a newer kid on the block, Graeme Stewart, is Deputy Editor of The Critic. Morning, Graeme. Uh, good morning, Matt. So first of all, let's just give you a sort of sales pitch. Uh, if I was in uh, WH Smith's browsing the, the magazine racks, you happened to sidle up to me. What would, uh, obviously from a safe distance, what would be your, your sales pitch of why someone would pick up your magazine? What are you going to get in the, in the Spectator, Fraser? Um, you're going to get a whole range of, of things. All life in all of its forms is there. It, there is politics, but you know, not too much of it. We've got an um, incredible book section, coverage of the arts. We do um, the columns, um, business, the works. And the funny thing is, though, if you're actually sitting in Smith's, there isn't much of a, you're basically, you're either a spectator person or you're a new statesman person. You, you're unlikely, I think, to go eeny meeny between the two of them. We are, <laughs> we're not really right. I never thought we're, we're a rival. We're not competitors. I didn't see us that way anyway. I think the newspapers are our, our, our competitors. Like either the, spe- the spectator, we all, we're pretty big on humor. We always do like a cartoon on the cover every single week. We don't tend to be more, tend to be that serious in the ways that some other publications are. If you're into that kind of thing, there's lots of, of things to choose from. And The Statesman, of course, does the same mix as The Spectator, big on arts, big on books, big on current affairs, but from a more left-leaning perspective. So I guess it's whichever floats your, floats your boat. 
Okay, then, uh, uh, Jason Cowley, then, your, your sales pitch, particularly because it's got a new look, the new states, which is partly what prompted us to have this conversation. Uh, so what, so you, you've sidled up to me in the news agents. How, how do you persuade me to buy the new statesman? I would say you're, if you buy the new statesman, you'll encounter some of the world's best writers writing on the defining subjects of our time, the, the big subjects that are driving change in the world today. And you'll find... Uh, a liberal, sceptical sensibility informs the magazine right across it from the political coverage, the longer reads and essays, right through into the cultural criticism you'll find at the the back of the book. But also, you know, the New Statesman isn't just a print magazine. It's Mm. it's very much a a thriving um, digital title today. And for me, that's the key. It's, It's both combination of print and digital and how the New Statesman is looking to push out from its traditional niche. I mean, Fraser spoke about um, a left of centre sensibility. It's certainly of the left, but I would say today it has a more liberal, sceptical sensibility than being sort of party political or particularly partisan. And above all else, we're interested in good writing by unpredictable and interesting thinkers. And, you know, we think there's, there's wit in the magazine, there's elegance, there's confrontation, but above all else, there's intelligence. We'll come back. We'll unpick some of that in just a moment. Uh, Graham Stewart, explain to people who don't know what the critic is and where it sits in the in the spectrum and in the on the newsstands. Launched in 2019, uh, like the Spectator and like the New Statesman, we have daily online only content, but also. Um, unlike the Spectator and unlike the New Statesman, we're a, a monthly magazine, uh, a monthly magazine of about a hundred pages. We think the magazine format gives us the opportunity to also have more long-form articles where writers go in depth on on important issues. The focus is primarily current current affairs, but also, as you would expect from our title, a very broad cultural sweep all the reviews, all the up-to-date information about the cultural world as well. Um, and uh, foremost, uh, I think we encourage a intelligent but uh, sceptical approach to uh, mainstream thinking. And uh, our contributors should never feel that there is any editorial hand guiding them away from sensitive subjects. Uh, we are uh, fundamentally committed to a free and independent uh, um, speech, thought, and uh, the best writing. That's a sales pitch. That's a sales pitch. Let's get let's get um, uh, uh, under the covers now. Uh, Fraser Nelson, how how weird is it? You're editing a magazine of of the right, the centre right, uh, but it used to be edited by now the Prime Minister. And I've, I was reading the, the editorial, the most recent one, you're pointing out, you know, it is something you point out, that when he was editor of the magazine, uh, he advocated a, an, a migrant amnesty, something he's now uh, less keen on, now he's actually uh, Prime Minister. How, describe the, your relationship with the Conservative Party. This is sort of the house magazine of the Conservative Party. You're you a critical friend. How much time in your week do you spend thinking about your predecessor? <laughs> I spend about as much time thinking of him as any editor would of the Prime Minister's policies. I guess the difference for us is that we compare what he's doing with what he was saying and writing when he was working for The Spectator. And, and Boris Johnson's unusual in that he's got this massive oeuvre of columns <laughs> where he set out his 
his view, and I'm um, I, I'm a bit more supportive of him than than, than most others. Uh, and I would say there was a coherence in what he wrote. He fundamentally was a, a liberal, and when he was editor, he was a hugely successful editor of the Spectator. It took us years to get back to the kind of sales peak that Boris left in, in, in 2006. And for many years, it was, it was my ambition to, to, to get up there to, to where, where he'd taken it. Um, and it, but when he does something which is a polar opposite to what he was arguing for, then we point it out. For example, when he was um, calling for vaccine passports, we ran a page in the magazine listing all the many times he'd written in The Spectator about the need to avoid identity cards and what a threat to liberty they were. Um, so if, if you like, we, um, we don't shy away from um, from pointing out what he was doing and saying. Because you know, and it's very easy for us journalists to say, oh, we think the government should be doing X, Y, and Z. But when that journalist actually gets in the hot seat, you get the chance to implement your vision. <laughs> but, you know, huge personal power. What's stopping him now? He's got this cabinet, which is more like a court than a government. Um, so we do tend to to compare his actions to his words when he was working for us. And does he, how does he respond to that? Like your, his, old, his old workplace, uh, sticking the boot in sometimes, or sometimes just embarrassing him. Does, he, in, does he react? He's very, yes, he's very relaxed about it. I mean, I, I, I do see him now and again, and he always says, oh, that's absolutely fine. It's, it's your, you know, he's very relaxed, almost encouraging of journalists criticising the government. He works out that was his stock and trade for many years. So he doesn't take anything um, personally. We've never had any sort of complaints from him that we think, you know, we've done this or that unfairly. But then again, we wouldn't expect to either because he knows that there is a proper kind of separation of powers, as it were. You shouldn't get prime ministers really complaining about what journalists (laughs) do. And just, um, you've been uh, editor for a few years now, Fraser. How how do you find that process? And what would you say has been the best thing you've you've published, or uh, and what's been the thing that you you perhaps regret publishing? <laughs> oh, regrets! There's far too few to mention. The job has changed completely. I've been editor for for twelve years now, and and Jason also. He's been hugely successful at the Statesman. Both of us are unusual in that we, we, we've lasted more than a decade in the editor's chair. And what's changed then is the nature of a political magazine, because right now, sure, we sell a weekly print, but the big difference is now we're, we're doing podcasts, we're doing videos, we're publishing every day online. You're getting this extension the, the, of, of the spectator, the statesman, the critic. All of us are becoming more daily publications than we are weekly ones. Um, so we stand far more comparison to the daily newspaper. Some people will only have a, a New Statesman subscription. They will get their news from a New Statesman and they'll be, they'll be very well served as a result. That would never happen before. The same is true for the spectator. The critic less so because it's monthly. But what we're seeing now is the, you know, I, mean, I, I once looked at all the current affairs titles in Europe. And there are something like 70 magazines, of whom only five have grown in the last 10 years. And the New Statesman and the Spectator are, are numbers one, one, one and two. So and why, do you, why think, do you think that is? Is it, is it because politics has been, you know, not, not radicalised us too much, but everyone's, you know, the interest in ideas and debate, you know, partly by maybe coalition, Brexit, referenda, Boris uh, Johnson, Donald Trump. Is it, is it just that politics is now a sort of... That's that you know. That's people's hobby now. In the same way, they might have bought, I know, train magazines or whatever before. It's certainly true that we've had explosive politics in this country ever since the Scottish referendum. That was about seven years ago, and that was the first time things got properly crazy. Then you get the knife edge, and um, Miliband's um, Cameron election. Then you get Brexit. Then you get COVID. So there's been an explosion in current affairs uh, 
recently that has absolutely benefited news news magazines and and there's, there's so many ways of, of of getting it and also things have been tough for newspapers simply because of the the rising cost of the industry it's been slightly easier for newspapers that have less uh, sort of magazines with um that are slightly smaller and slightly fleet foot to to adapt i mean times radio is a fantastic example of a of a newspaper brand, one of those famous brands in the world, expanding to take in the whole radio station. We magazines do this in our smaller kind of way, but that's the great, this is why it's such a great time to be in journalism right now. Technology gives you all of these opportunities. So you end up with titles as old as the Times, as a spectator, as a new statesman, that end up with a bigger audience than ever before, even if the newspaper market is struggling because of what technology offers. And that's, um, that's what makes it so much of a joy. Just finally, uh, Fraser, have you managed to overtake the sales figures that Boris Johnson managed? <laughs> we did. I was, I was <laughs> to do that. It was about six years ago. Um, and so, yeah, it, but it was, you know, he was, when he was editor, he embodied the spectator's values, perhaps a little bit too much with his extracurricular activity. <laughs> We like to think we, we, we've done it with it in a, a less scandalous way, shall we say, perhaps a little less more boring way. But we've also taken our, our sales over 100,000. Uh, they were about sort of, I think his peak was about 68,000. So we're still, we're still going strong. I like to think we're not even halfway there yet. Very good. That's good news for um, uh, the, the sales and probably good news for Mrs Nelson as well. Uh, Fraser Nelson, thanks very much for joining us. Let's speak to Jason Cowley now, Editor-in-Chief at The New Statesman. Um, Jason, I'm really taken by your... You're saying you've sort of slightly moved away from the idea of being the sort of the house magazine of the Labour Party, sort of sceptical liberal is now the sort of position you take. And I'm struck that on the front page, the most recent one, it's uh, Angela Merkel. The leader is actually it's an endorsement of uh, of uh, who you think, the, the, if the new statesman had a vote in the German elections, it would be for the SPD. And then you have to get quite a long way in the magazine before you get to anything about the Labour Party. And it's a big picture of Keir Starr under the headline, The Man Who Wasn't There. Um, so it, what's, what's been the driving force be, behind that? Is it because what's been going on in the Labour Party in recent years has been of, of niche interest? Uh, or is it just because actually the, the history of the New Statesman, uh, a long-standing publication, is, is, has been at odds with what happened to the Labour Party, particularly under Jeremy Corbyn? I think, I think Matt, it goes back um, to the beginning of my editorship, really, when we... The magazine had previously been owned by a Labour MP, um, guy called Jeffrey Robinson, who was very close to the Brownite faction within the party. And then the magazine was bought by an independent businessman who appointed me as editor with a mission to sort of grow, change, modernise the new statesman. And I didn't think it was interesting for a publication to be so, so, so closely connected to one political party. And I didn't think it would be of interest to me as an editor, my staff, or indeed our readers, if the focus of the New Statesman's activities was, was the Labour Party. Um, not long after I became editor, and there isn't a causal relationship here, Labour lost the 2010 general election, Gordon Brown lost, the coalition government came into power under the leadership of David Cameron, and a whole new era of British politics began. And, you know, what a well, 11 years later, the new Labour Party is far from power. And doesn't look like it's going to be returning to power anytime soon. It's had a catastrophic, indeed, historic defeat in Scotland from which um, it's unlikely to recover. And it's begun to lose in its heartlands in the Midlands and, and the North of England, particularly the northeast of England. So, you know, th this has been a very 
troubling and many ways a shattering period of decline for the Labour Party. We've tracked that, we write about it, but always with a with a sceptical intelligence and we're, we're at a remove from the party. We're not part of any faction. Um, this week, for example, we had Keir Starmer was interviewed in the magazine, but he didn't make the cover because I don't think he said anything particularly interesting, which <laughs> warranted um, an appearance on our cover last week. I suppose we that's the brilliant, thing, isn't it? Um, if, if the Labour Party was a bit more exciting, being sort of in and amongst it would be good for sales, wouldn't it? But it, you, you're right. If, I think if, so. I think so, Matt. In, in 95, for example, when... Um, Jeffrey first bought the magazine and Ian Hargreaves was editor and Steve Richards was political editor. Now, Blair and Brown were beginning their transformation of the Labour Party. And I remember talking to Steve about this, the, the then political editor, and he said anything they wrote about a shadow cabinet member or anything that a particular shadow cabinet member said in an interview was often then splashed on the Times or the Telegraph or the Guardian because they knew that the direction of travel was one towards power. You know, the new Labour government would form the next government and would be transformative. And therefore, there was more interest in a party that was about to take power rather than one that seems to be mired in a long, extended and bitter civil war. Until the party starts talking beyond itself to the country at large and understanding the forces in play, the forces that are driving change, not only in the UK, but in the world, I don't think it's got much chance of returning to power. Does it? I mean, because I know the Labour Party didn't endorse any party in, in uh, twenty nineteen. Um, uh, in a new statesman, not the Labour so, Party. Sorry, sorry. Labor, yeah, who knows what the Labour? But yeah, the new statesman didn't didn't support any part, endorse any party in twenty nineteen. In part because uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn thought was unfit for uh, to serve as Prime Minister, particularly given the record on anti semitism. Does this does this free you up a bit? Does it mean you get sort of more or less grief from people in the Labour Party you think it should be the sort of house magazine just beat, banging the drum for Labour regardless of what they're doing or whether or not they're saying anything interesting? Yeah, you, there's always an expectation that the new statesmen should adopt certain positions or support certain factions. Um, you know, we certainly didn't endorse the Conservative Party in, in 2019. What we did was lay out an argument and offer an alternative um, political vision for, for the country, which we don't think any party has come close to meeting. Um, you know, maybe may rather high, high minded, rather grand, but that's that's what we did. But also, it was a it was an affirmation of our independence, of our scepticism, and an indication that we were travelling in a different direction. And that's I think I think that's part of the success of the new statesman in recent years is our is our unpredictability, our consistency in many ways. I mean, it wasn't just Jeremy Corbyn; we were very very critical of the leadership of Ed Miliband who in many ways set the party on its on its in its present um, direction. So it's been a anyone who'd been reading the magazine for a long time, by which I mean five to six, seven years, wouldn't have been surprised by our 2019 election. And we also have, you know, larger ambitions, not only to move to go beyond our traditional niche as a magazine of the of the British left, hence our appointment of Jeremy Cliff, the economist, as our international editor. We're building a significant international team under his leadership. And I thought our coverage of the German election has been first rate. Last week's leader was just a little bit of fun, a little bit of mischief making. Um, obviously, we've got we've got no influence in, in Germany. Although, interestingly, our endorsement was picked up by the German equ- equivalent of Tim Shipman. Um, you know, the dominant political... What a terrifying thought. (laughs) I I said to Jeremy Cliff, we should interview this um, German, um, Tim Shipman, and he tweeted out our leader, and he got quite a bit of traction as a consequence. So that was was just a little bit of fun. Yeah, Yeah. but but I suppose it is also a reflection that as a a magazine, you think that what's going on in German politics, the 
the uh, the replacement of Angela Merkel and and your position on it. That is just more interesting to read than the not very exciting goings on inside the Labour Party. Uh, we thought so. I mean, Merkel's coming to the end of a sixteen year reign, which I mean. is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. yeah extraordinary period and jeremy cliff who's based in berlin our international editor is an, is an expert on, on german politics and you know as a consequence we gave him four or five thousand words six seven pages of the magazine to write about it but because of the strength of our digital offering the piece has been shared and has traveled all around the world so that's that's our ambition to yeah. use the website to internationalize our readership and it's and it's working we're, we're very encouraged so far by by the rapidity of our growth it's 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 good it's good similar to also similar to what Fraser was saying when he was on we have been fortunate the last five or six years have been absolutely extraordinary politically not just in the UK with the Scottish independence referendum of 2014 the 2015 coalition government the Brexit vote but also Trump and that that whole period in America the rise of national populism that swept across Europe uh, Macronism in France. There's been so much going on, and if you take a little bit of distance from events, you know, you analyse them, you write about them with intelligence, you look behind the news, you try and explain the forces that are, that are driving this change. I think readers want that. It's great that the, we have, we still have newspapers which are moving very very quickly, reactively to events, but we can offer a little bit of. Uh, we're a remove of events. We're offering more thoughtful commentary, analysis essays longer reads long profiles but equally we can do something more quicker more reactive on our website so that combination i think is what is driving the revival of um, political and cultural magazines and i'm delighted matt by the arrival of the critic which i think is a very fine publication very un- very intelligent and it's a publication of the right but i think again it has skeptical politics high quality writing essays, as well as um, cultural criticism, some good political commentary. So I welcome the arrival of more publications in our space. I think, it, I think it's, a good, it's, it's a very good time to be editing these, these magazines. Well, I was going to bring Graham in there. I'm not sure I need to. Now. Graham, uh, <laughs> Graham Dempsey. I'm, I, I, I'm very happy to do Graham's PR thing. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe Graham, you, you, want the to, job. you want to replay <laughs> the cold one. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that we were sort of, talk, you know, for so long, you know, for as long as I've been a journalist and when I first trained, 20, 19, 20 years ago, um, people were t- predicting the death of uh, of print. And actually, um, Graeme, you come along and you launch a print magazine, you know, a, a monthly magazine. Obviously, it has got a digital offer too, but it's not entirely a digital thing. Do you think this is partly because in a world where, and I do this all the time, if I'm trying to read something on an iPad or my phone, you sort of get a you know, few pars into it, and then, oh, oh, something's pinged there. Oh, I'll just have a look on Twitter. Oh, I'll just... And you get distracted. And actually, there's something about holding a, a print thing in your hand which can't beep at you, and you can sit and enjoy the thing from beginning to end. Is that part of the, the logic of launching a, a, print, uh, digital, uh, a print product in 2019? Very much so. And when we did launch... Um... Many fair-minded people thought we were mad. Uh, we <laughs> thought we were mad ourselves, and we've uh, surprised ourselves by our level of sanity because uh, we've really I- exceeded what we possibly thought was possible. But um, I think you're right. The the digital aspect, you know, Twitter, social media, uh, readers then uh, sharing uh, content they've seen online – feeds through and helps the sales of the of the physical magazine as well. And, and the two are similar, but uh, but have fundamentally different aspects, particularly in terms of the of, of, of the longer reads. Fraser 
was saying earlier that um, you know, we're, we're in an age of very intense politics, and that has certainly helped the popularity of political magazines. But we, we were in an age of very intense politics in the 1970s and 1980s, and uh, you know, the, the Spectator and uh, Jason will come here on the New Statesman, but you, the, the, the circulation of, of those magazines then was much smaller than it is now. Uh, and I mean, uh, we've been around for two years and we, we've already got the, the print circulation that The Spectator had in, in the late 1970s when it'd been around for 150 years. So that gives you a sense of how quickly uh, we can scale up uh, with this mixture of digital and print. But having print, I think, is very helpful in, in framing our magazine and uh, giving us an identity and, and, a, and a seriousness and, and a weight, which uh, a lot of readers appreciate. Jason, is it because you know, we're so bombarded with information now from news, you know, no, news notifications, rolling news on TV, on our phones, on Twitter, or whatever it might be, that actually just pausing and someone who knows what they're talking about, explaining what is going on and what does it mean, uh, is a way that lots of people are now trying to navigate the world. We're not short of information. We're, we're, it's the analysis and the, the, the pausing and taking stock that, that um, magazines like The Statesman and The Spectator and The Critic can do. I think that's definitely the case. And the ability to have a, a monthly magazine, uh, longer pieces where you can take time at the weekend or whenever to pause, read, get away from the screen is is really helpful. So just to give an example, you know, we did a, a, a few months ago a really long profile of Mario Draghi, very influential force in Italian and European politics. But actually, there's very little in, in the English language uh, uh, that provides an, an in-depth into this most important figure. So, you know, we, we, we can run pieces like that, which might not, um, you know, um, uh, set Twitter on fire, but for our, uh, for our subscribers are really informative reads. Was that uh, Ben Judah's piece? Yes, that's right. That, that, that piece also did well um, online. It, it travelled. You know, pe- people shared that. that. That was a very good piece. It did. Thank you. But I, I think the fact we were able to do it, first of all, in the magazine helped frame the, the style in which it was written. And then, as you say, it, it did well online as well. But uh, thanks, Jason. But actually, Jason, just finally, on the, on the uh, yeah. it sort of slightly goes back to the, the Merkel piece as well. That, um, you know, there's always this complaint. Why are we so obsessed with American politics? Uh, as opposed to European politics, which is much closer to us, um, in part in part because most of it is in French or German or Italian or whatever it might be, and actually a really good, good thoughtful piece on German politics. Um, I read that there was a great piece in the Sunday Times magazine a couple of weeks ago. Oliver Moody did on sort of Angela Merkel, which really sort of t- t- tried to much like um, uh, Jeremy's piece in the Statesman. Really took a step yeah. back, and you actually think people who are really interested in politics do want to know about German politics too. But it's harder to come by sometimes because, uh, you know, the, the world of German Twitter and German websites is much harder to navigate than the Washington Post or the New York Times, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it obviously helps to have um, linguistic experts um, who can who can who understand the country from inside the country, as Jeremy does, or some of our writers who are, who are based in France and write brilliantly about France. I mean, these European countries are obviously of dominant interest to us. We go on holiday there. We have friends there. We visit these countries regularly. But for some reason, I agree, Matt, we allow we allow American politics, particularly American cultural politics, to kind of dominate the conversation in in the UK. And I think that's a mistake. And there's there's this kind of misunderstanding of America and often often a complacent acceptance that America is closer to Britain than it actually is. It's actually a completely different culture from the UK. 
and, it, and we're often much closer to our our European friends, as Boris Johnson always calls them, who are, who are much closer, and with whom we've had um, deep historical associations. So yeah, I, we want to write more about Europe, as well as the US, but I think there's too much American politics on the BBC, for example, or even American news. Sadly, if a kind of gunman goes into a McDonald's and blasts seven or eight people in Florida, you know, terrible mass shooting, that for some reason that dominates the BBC News to the exclusion of what might be happening in France or Germany or Italy or indeed China. And we want to we want to look um, out beyond beyond America to the rest of the world, but particularly Europe. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.